Turn your Bibles this evening, the book of Acts. Of course, after the service, if you have any questions, you can ask myself or my wife or Wendy. We'll be happy to answer those for you. I appreciate uh, Pastor Shepard, the opportunity to be here um, and uh, allow us to come just based on the word of your brother. I guess you have a good relationship with your brother, all right? No, it's, and, uh, but uh, actually I did meet his brother in Kenya the first time. His brother went over on a, on a trip, and that's where we actually met. And so his brother has preached in our church and, and met a lot of the people that you've seen there in the video. But uh, thank you for this opportunity uh, to preach all day, uh, my third time today. And I'll say, I, I, I visit a lot of churches and uh, preach in a lot of churches. And uh, a lot of times you can get a good sense of the spiritual temperature of the church when you get up to preach. Um, uh, on the liberty that you have to preach. And I appreciate the, the great liberty I've felt here in this church to preach the Word of God. Um, not sense any kind of... Sometimes you get up to preach and you can just sense... <laughs> you know, a wall going up. All right, I didn't sense that anywhere at all this morning, except right over there where your pastor sits. But other than that, <laughs> but I, I certainly appreciate that, and uh, that makes preaching so much more enjoyable. Acts chapter number 16 this evening. Uh, really, I'm just going to preach a, a simple outline this evening, but I hope that uh, the Lord will use this to speak to your hearts and that that you really... My desire is for you to remember the points of this outline when you're reading this portion of Scripture. I want to begin in Acts chapter 16. Again, if we'd stand this evening. Acts chapter 16, verse number 6, and we'll read down through verse number 12. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the regions of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. We were in that city abiding certain days. Let us pray. Father, this evening I, I'd ask that you would be with this message. Lord, I, Lord, I pray that you'd open our hearts and minds to understanding and, Lord, to the need that exists in this world today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of my message this evening, if I give it a title, would be simply Macedonia Still Exists. Macedonia Still Exists. Here in this scripture we read and we found this place called Macedonia mentioned several times. It's mentioned twice in verse number 9. It's mentioned in verse 10. It's mentioned in verse 12. We read that Paul was in Galatia in verse 6. He wanted to go southwest to Asia. But the Holy Spirit told him no. God said, no, that's not what I want you to do. So then Paul decided he wanted to go northeast to Bithynia. But again, the Holy Spirit told him no. I don't want you to do that. And Paul and his team ended up in the coastal town of Troas. In verse 8, Troas sat by the Asian Sea. 
And this is where Paul had this vision, what we know of as the Macedonian vision. He had a clear and a specific vision that took the gospel of Jesus Christ for the very first time to the continent of Europe. Macedonia was not a part of the world that Paul was planning to visit. It was not a part of the world that was really on Paul's mind. It was not on his itinerary. If I could use modern day vernacular, we could say Macedonia was not programmed into Paul's GPS. It's just not what he had planned to do. But God gave Paul a vision of this man from Macedonia. And when Paul saw that vision, it changed his direction. And understand something this evening. Paul could have disregarded that vision. Paul could have said, you know what? It's not what I've planned to do. (laughs) It's not what I trained myself to do. It's not what I want. I want to go to this place. There's nobody preaching the gospel there. They need the gospel. And Paul could have went ahead and done that. And I'd imagine probably, because we're told God's word will not return void, I'd imagine a lot of people probably would have got saved. And I think, knowing what I read about the Apostle Paul, some churches would have been started. And probably some people would say, man, it's great, Paul's doing a good job. But understand, Paul would not have been doing what God wanted him to do. And God would have had got, got somebody else to step into the place to do what he wanted Paul to do. You know, it's important for all of us to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. God might lead you to do something that he's not going to lead me to do. And if I try to do what he wants you to do and ignore what I'm supposed to do, uh, probably a mess is going to be made of things. We've got to follow the leading of God. And and Paul did that. Of course, we know that uh, Paul uh, 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 took that vision and, and took it to heart. It says in verse number 10 that immediately they went. They left Troas and they went to Samarthasia. And Samarthasia is a little island in the North Aegean Sea. They spent the night and then went to Neapolis in verse 11. And at Neapolis, the gospel reached the shores of Europe for the very first time. They left Neapolis in verse 12 and they went about five miles away to a place called Philippi. And in Philippi, they began to witness. They began to speak to those who needed and wanted salvation People the Lord has, was working on, baptizing people, and churches were started. And the evangelization of Europe began here in Acts 16. But the gospel didn't stop there. The gospel continued west until Paul eventually reached Rome. The Bible tells us that Paul wanted to go to Spain. We don't know if he did. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But we do know the gospel went to Spain and the gospel spread throughout the continent of Europe. But it didn't stop there. It continued west. It continued west across the Atlantic Ocean until it reached a new colony called America. And in 1620, those pilgrims came across on the Mayflower carrying with them the same Bible that we hold in our hands this evening. We could humanly speaking say, the gospel reached us because Paul obeyed that vision. This evening, as we consider this scripture and we consider this vision that Paul had, I want to give you three simple points and illustrate those points. And 
I, I hope that you'll remember the points of this message. The first point is this. There are still places in the world today just like Macedonia. We might live in the year 2020, and we might have a lot of modern things the world has never known before. But let us not for a moment think that there are not places in the world today like Macedonia that need desperately the gospel of Jesus Christ, that need desperately churches started. And I'm not as familiar with the whole world, I guess, as I ought to be, but my part of the world where God has sent me that I'm very in tune to is the continent of Africa, especially Eastern Africa, Central Africa, where we live. And we showed on the video this evening, country after country after country, that I could stand here before you and say there are countries just like Macedonia. There are countries that are difficult to go to, difficult because of the troubles, the, tra- the tragedies, the things going on inside the borders of those countries. Uh, uh, difficult because of the standard of living in those countries and not many wanting to go and sacrifice to go to those places. A lot of, a lot of uh, uh, reasons, but uh, those places I'm familiar with. I'd like to share with you something that happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We spoke a bit about that this morning, some things in Congo you saw in the video. That church that we first started in Uvira, it was going well. A lot of good things were happening. And as I mentioned, we always have two of our men from the church in Kenya that are over there overseeing that ministry. And one day after the church was a couple years old, a man showed up at the door of the church asking to speak to our Kenyans. And he came with a story. He told our Kenyans that he was pastoring a church in a faraway village. And that word had reached that village that some people had come from Kenya and started a church and was training people in the ministry. And he asked the question, he said, I have this church and we want you people to come to our village and help us. Well, our men didn't quite know what to say to him, so they called me on the phone in Kenya. And they said, Pastor Mickey, what do we tell this guy? And I said, tell him no. (laughs) I said, first of all, we're not looking for anything else to do. And secondly, the guy's probably lying. He probably heard what's going on and... uh, you know, and, and he's looking for something that we're not offering. I, I'm in my mind, I'm thinking he's looking for money. I said, so tell him, no, you know, it's just something that we can't do. So they did that. They told him that. On my next trip to Congo, which was several weeks after that, when I arrived, that man that was claiming to be a pastor was waiting to see me. Missionary, I need to talk to you. And he goes for the same thing that he told our men. He says, I want you to come to our village and help us. And again, I said to the man, I says, no, I'm sorry, we're just not going to do that. I says, we, we don't have time. And in my mind, I didn't say this to him, but in my mind, I'm thinking, you're just making this up. You, you aren't really real, really a pastor. You're just looking for some money. And we're not here to give people money. We're here to give people the gospel. That's what I was thinking. But he said to me, he says, well, missionary, he says, would you at least pray about it? I mean, can't say no to that. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Right? I mean, have you ever told somebody no when they ask you to pray about something? (laughs) But maybe you weren't really thinking about putting it high on your list. All right? I'm speaking honestly here. So I said, yeah, I'm sure I could pray about it. Pray about it. He said, okay, and he left. Every several months, that man would show up, or somebody claiming to be from that village or from his church, asking our men in Congo, when are you coming? 
question, the answer was always the same. From time to time, when I'm over on one of my trips to Congo, either he would be there or somebody claiming to be from his church, asking, when are you coming? Answer is always the same. Two years went by. I'm in Congo, and this supposed pastor shows up for church service. And after the service, he speaks to me, and he says, missionary, when are you coming? I said, I'm sorry. I said, we're just not. I don't have time, and we're just not. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this guy just needs to leave me alone. Then he says to me, he says, well, you have been praying about it, haven't you? And I said, I'm (coughs) maybe once or twice. He says, well, I know if you've been praying about it, you're going to be coming. And I'm like, I looked at Pastor Olo, our co-pastor in Kenya. He was over there in in Congo with me at the time, and I says, you know what, this guy's not going to leave us alone. Maybe we just need to go to his village and, you know, put an end to this. So I said, okay, we'll come. And so we set a date and we set a time and uh, he says, let me go make the arrangements. And he left and then I looked at the map. I should have done that before I agreed. And I realized that where this village was, it was a good journey from where we are, were. And you got to understand that in Congo, there aren't any roads. I mean, they have some roads, but they're not roads, okay? I promise you that, okay? In eastern Congo, they don't know what a paved road is. And uh, as I looked, I saw that even what they claim to be roads, there are not any going to this village. The only way to get, this, get to this village is by a boat down Lake Tanganyika, which is a very long lake. It's, 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 a, it's a large lake, and... And not only you got to get there by boat, but this village sat in the midst of rebel-controlled territory. We showed, talked about that war on there, and uh, the, where there was still rebel activity controlling some areas, and this village was in that area. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, you know, this is probably, I, I probably should have given uh, a look at this early, but we made a commitment. So I thought, well, I mean, that's okay. I've been on a boat before. I mean... The boat's got to be better than going down what they call roads here. So let's go down and make arrangements to take the boat. So we got down to the boat dock and uh, asked around and found out where the boat was and went to Kazimia. And I looked at the boat and I thought, well, it's not quite what I had in mind as a boat. I mean, yeah, it's a boat and it's floating, but it's not very big. And I don't see a seat on the boat. <laughs> and uh, we made arrangements. We bought our ticket and... They told us the time to be there, and we showed up at the appointed time, and they said, sorry, uh, the boat's not leaving today. We don't have enough people to go on the boat, so come back tomorrow. And uh, we did that for several days before we received word that the boat was now ready to leave. So I walked down to the dock with Pastor Lowe. We get to the boat. Now, understand, this boat has no seats on it, okay, People were sitting, where people were sitting were on the edge of the boat with their feet hanging down to the middle where there was a cargo area or on the other side, outside where the water was. And when we got to the boat, all of those seats around the boat, what people were sitting on, was completely full. And we looked inside the boat, and on the cargo that they were carrying, there were women and children sitting on that. And they're looking at me, and they're like, no, don't worry, don't worry, we have this special place for you. And I'm like, all right. And up in the front, they had a little wooden platform. It was a small wooden platform, maybe 
five feet across, five feet by five feet, where they had the anchor and a couple crew that was taking care of the anchor. And they said, we're going to let you sit here, just on this wooden platform. So myself and Pastor Lowe sat on there on on the ground, and we're getting ready to leave. And as we're getting ready to leave, more people are coming to get on the boat. And understand, there's no more, there's nowhere for anybody to sit. So they're coming up to where we are, where we're sitting on the ground here, and they're standing around us, and more people are getting on. And more people are getting on to where now we're surrounded by legs and we have to stand because, I mean, we can't sit. And this little platform that we're sitting on now is full of people standing as that boat begins to take off. Way overloaded. Much more people in weight than that little engine would push. And as we are leaving that port, that place, literally as we're leaving, there are people in canoes paddling to catch up to the boat, to try to get on the boat. So I'm thinking in my mind, surely we must be going down the shore here a little bit and stopping at a village to drop these people off. That's what I thought. But about six hours into the trip, I realized that's not what was happening. Now, you've got to understand, probably there's never been somebody who looks like me that has been on that boat before. I'm in deep Congo. I mean, people from the Western world just don't go there. And I'm standing in this hot equatorial sun. Now, we were prepared a little bit for a long trip. We knew it wasn't going to be quick, but not quite what we had in store for us. And after about six hours, you get really tired of standing. You have to rest. What are you going to do? And so to rest and not to be crude or rude or anything, but we would kind of have to take our elbows and try to, like, elbow people out of the way a little bit so that we could squat. Now, that feels good. After standing for six hours? Oh, wow. But you know, you can only do this for so long. Until you get tired of squatting and you got to stand. And as soon as you'd stand, that little space that you got, I mean, somebody else has it. Now, again, not to be crude, but there are no toilets on this boat. The Congolese are just using the side of the boat. We continued down that lake hour after hour. And God is my witness. We were on that boat for two days before we reached that village. The longer we went, the more miserable I became. The longer we went, the more upset I became with God. You got to understand, I was hurting in places that I never knew existed. I was as miserable, and I was having the worst pity party in the world that you could imagine. I had with me one bottle of water. That's what I had. A little bit of dried fruit. That hot equatorial sun beating on me. We estimated that on that boat, with everybody where we were and sitting along the side and on the cargo, there was 120 people. When we finally reached that village, early in the morning, I fell off that boat. I wanted to do nothing but fall into a hole 
and sleep and not wake up. I was as miserable as possible. I had been telling God that I would never go back to that place. I wanted to do nothing but turn around and go home and never see that God-forsaken land again. That was my attitude. But when we got off that boat early in the morning, there was a group of people waiting for us. And they were happy to see us. I wasn't happy to see them. They're like, oh, missionary, what took you so long to get here? I'm like, what are you talking about? You told me to come here. You must have known. How could you do this to me? They said, oh, missionary, we have to go to the pastor's house. Where's that at? It's 45 minutes up that path. I said, which one of you going to carry me? Every step up that path, I'm telling God, I don't appreciate this. God, how could you do this to me? God, is there any, there's nobody in the world worth going through this misery. That was my, that was my attitude. We reached that pastor's house, and it was a typical village African house, mud walls, grass roof, maybe 10 feet by 10 feet, little house. Just a small room where you walk in where there's a small table, a small bedroom off to the side. Walking to that pastor's house, I sat at that table. There's two chairs, sat next to Pastor Lowe. My eyes were closed, and I'm having the world's worst pity party. Unbeknownst to me, as I'm sitting there with my eyes closed, in the door of that house walked the pastor that had invited us there, who I thought was making all this up, with some men of his church. They didn't say anything. They just began to sing. They began to sing a familiar song. We sing it here in our churches. Same words, except in Swahili, the exact same tune. The song that we sing, Send the Light. They began to sing that song. They began to sing that first verse. And as they began to sing, I'm telling you, the sound that I heard coming out of their voices, out of their mouths, was unlike anything I've ever heard in my life. They startled me because when they began singing, it, the tune and, and, and as they sang, I mean, for a moment I thought, is this a choir of angels standing in front of me singing? It sounded so beautiful. And they began to sing that familiar song verse by verse very slowly and they got down to the last verse. And they began to sing those words, let us not be weary in the work of love. Send the light. Send the light. And about that point of the song, God the Holy Spirit broke me. And I just began to weep uncontrollably. As I realized, here I'm having the world's greatest pity party and all these people are asking for is somebody to come and share with them the light. And I'm thinking of my thoughts, and my thoughts are, are there any people in the world that's worth what I'm going through? And God says, well, I think so. And he broke me. And after they began singing, I mean, I looked over at Pastor Lowe, and I didn't know he was having the same thoughts I was. He's wiping all the tears out of his eyes. And after they began singing, finished singing, that pastor began to speak. And for the first time, I was willing to listen to him. And this is what he told me. He said, back in the 1960s, 
when we received our independence from Belgium. So there was a young missionary here by the name of Bob Williams that came to Eastern Congo, and he led a young man to the Lord by the name of Guo Moja. And when Guo Moja got saved, God called him to preach, and he began to get trained. He received training for about six months, and the rebellion came. They were talking about what is known as the Simba Rebellion. Simba Rebellion was when uh, Simba is a Swahili word for lion, and uh, the uh, communist-trained people, rebels, overtook the new government and took control of the country. They were communists, and they did what communists do. They didn't like Christianity. And so they began to imprison pastors, close churches down, and they began to kill pastors. And they also martyred several independent Baptist missionaries during that day. You can read their stories in books. And so during the Simba Rebellion, missionaries had to flee. Pastors, people, Christians had to flee into hiding. And this young man, Guomolja, fled to his home village where he came from, the village of Kazimia, where we were. This pastor is relating me the story. The pastor's name was Shabani, and he said when Guomolja came here, when he came home, he didn't know everything he's supposed to know. But he did know he was saved. He did know he was a Baptist. And he knew he was supposed to tell others. So that's what he began to do. He began to go out throughout this village and share with people Jesus Christ. And people began to get saved. And after they got saved, he baptized them. And after baptizing them, they were formed into a church. He pointed to a building just outside and said, that church building right there. He said, and when the church was formed, he said, my pastor, he was my pastor, he said, and the church began to pray. And their prayer was this, God, we don't know everything we should know. God, there's a lot that we still need to learn. And and God, would you just send somebody to teach us? God, would you send somebody here to Kazimia to teach us the word of God, to train us in the right doctrine so that we're doing things the right way? He said the church began to pray for that from the very beginning. And several years went by and nobody ever came. But the church kept praying. And as the church was praying, they kept witnessing and teaching and preaching. And other people got saved and villages around until other churches were started. Until today, there are 12 other churches in the villages surrounding here. He said, and every time one of those churches was started, they prayed the same prayer. God, there's so much more we need to learn. God, there's so much teaching we need to have. God, would you send somebody? He said, years went by. Nobody ever came. He said, five years ago, my pastor, Guomoja, died. We buried him right out there by the church building. He pointed to where his grave was. He said, I was the assistant pastor, and they called me to be the pastor. And When I became the pastor, we continued praying. But still, nobody came. He said, till about two years ago, we received a letter in the village. A young man by the name of Mapia wrote a letter from Uvira and put it in the mail and it came. Now, when he's saying put it in the mail, it's not quite like the mail is here. All right. Understand, he wrote a letter and he gave it to somebody who eventually got it to Kazimia. And when it got there, he wrote this letter to his mother and he told his mother, 
He said, Mom, I'm in Uvira here to go to school. And he goes, and I, he goes, I met somebody from Kenya, and they gave me a gospel track that talked about Jesus. He said, and it, it said some things I had never understood before, and I decided to go to the church, and I went to the church, and I heard about Jesus Christ, and I got saved. And after I got saved, Mom, God began to do a work in my heart, and he called me to preach. He said, and they've started a small Bible college, and I joined the Bible college to be trained as a preacher. He's sharing this testimony with his mother. His mother's reading this, and she's reading some things that she doesn't quite understand. A Baptist church? (laughs) What's a Baptist church? I mean, what's this strange thing that my son has got involved in? So she started going around asking, anybody know about a Baptist church? Until finally she was directed to this church, and she talked to the pastor. And showed him the letter. And that pastor saw that letter and he got excited. He goes, tell me about these Baptists that are in Uvira. She goes, I don't know. I'm asking you. He says, I want to go find out. So he got on the boat and went to Uvira and walked through this town of 50,000 people until he found our men and asked our men to come to him. So he told me that story and he says, when I received that letter and I read that letter, I knew that God was beginning to answer our prayer. He said, so I went and I found you people, and now you're here. And you are the answer to our prayer. And as he told me that story, I started to think, for 40 years, do you understand, for 40 years, here's a group of people praying that God would send somebody to teach them more. And when God decided it was time to answer that prayer, do you know what God did? He looked down out of the portals of heaven and he didn't find a church in America. He found a church in Kenya and said, I see what they're doing. I I see their stand. I see their zeal. I see their sacrifice. Let me use them to answer that prayer. And God showed me in a real vivid way that in the year that we live in, There are still places today just like Kazimian. They're all over the world. God wants somebody to go to those places. Point number two. There are still people in the world today just like the Macedonian man. There are still people today just like that Macedonian man that's praying, looking, for help for some place. I showed you in the video this evening a little bit about the election violence that we went through in Kenya. The time of the video did not allow me to get into a lot of detail, but I want to tell you that the epicenter of what was going on was where our church was. Um, We went from 400 people to 30 people in a week. Because everybody was gone. When God provided that miracle and saved the people that were seeking refuge, and we started finding people in the displacement camps, we had a humanitarian situation that was terrible. Nobody had any food. People were hungry. And I told my wife, I said, I don't know what we're going to do. I said, but we got to feed these people. I told her, I says, listen, if we've got to go take loans from the bank and max out every credit card we have to feed these people, we've got to do that. I wrote a letter to my pastor, and I told my pastor that 
said, this is a situation, this is what we need to do. And he began forwarding that letter to other pastors. And unknowing to me, that letter began to get forward all over the United States. And immediately, almost overnight, I began to receive messages and money wired to my bank account from all over the world to feed people. I heard from people, pastors and churches in the United States that I never knew them. They didn't know me. They were sending money. I had churches, listen to me, churches in China sending me money. Romania. I'm telling you, all over the world. We began to feed people. Every day we were feeding five, six, seven hundred people. Not just from our church, but other sister Baptist churches in different areas where the people were putting in displacement camps and feeding people. And, and uh, uh, our main displacement camp where most of the people were, finally after quite some time, the Red Cross started going there. And after the Red Cross started going there, they called me aside one day and they said to me, listen, we cannot allow you to come and give away food anymore. I said, what are you talking about? He says, because you're making us look bad. All of your people are eating so well, and we can't hardly take care of anybody. It's, it's just not looking good for us. <laughs> so we had to meet people outside the camp to give them their food. My point was is God used churches and Christians all over the world to be a blessing. And so when we came back to the States the next time on our next furlough, instead of doing a normal furlough to go to just our supporting churches, we decided we wanted to go to those churches that gave to help our people. Just to say thank you. Many of those churches were not supporting churches and churches that didn't intend to support us. But I contacted everyone. And there was a church that gave us a good amount of money from a place called Westville, Nova Scotia. And uh, just a small church. And I contacted them and uh, the pastor said he wanted me to come. And I was kind of hoping he'd say no because it's really far away. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it's even a different time zone than eastern time zone it's farther east <laughs> and uh, I looked at the map and I'm like man this is a long trip and uh, my wife and children decided they were going to stay home and visit some relatives because <laughs> I took that trip by myself and it took a long time to get there I'm telling you a 24-hour drive it was terrible I pulled into that church on a Saturday night where I was going to stay and uh, the next morning went to the building just a small building just a small community but they gave money to help us. And I was preaching that morning, and there was maybe 50 people there. And as I was preaching in the back door, walked a young lady. With, with her was an older couple. Now, this young lady immediately drew my attention because she was a black young lady. And, okay, in Nova Scotia, there's just not very many blacks that live there. So, obviously, she drew my attention, and she sat down in the back. I finished the message, and... At the end of service, I went to my table and was greeting people, and she came up, and she began to speak to me. And when she began to speak, immediately as she began to speak, I knew she was from Africa. She just had that accent. She introduced herself to me, and she told me that she was from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Well, she had not been earlier in the service where we talked about the ministry and all of that. So I said to her, I says, wow, that's interesting. I said, where in Congo are you from? I says, we just started a church in Congo. And she's like, oh, missionary. She said, Congo is a big country. You will never have heard of the place I'm from. And I'm like, well, you're right. Congo is a big country. Congo land area is the size of the United States from the Mississippi River East. 
That's how large that country is. It's a big country. I says, yeah, you're right, it's a big country. I says, but you know, where we started the church is in the eastern side of the country. And she said, oh, missionary, where I come from is in a, in a place from the eastern side of the country. But, you know, missionary, the eastern Congo is big. And it, it is, it's a big area. She said, you wouldn't have heard where I'm from. I says, well, the, the part of eastern Congo where we started the church is in the province of South Kivu. And she goes, oh, oh. She goes, well, I come from a place in South Kivu, but, you know, missionary, South Kivu's big. You've never heard of where I'm from. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're right, it's big. And I said, the area of South Kivu where we started the church is on the, on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. She's like, well, I come from a place on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. <laughs> but missionary, you know Lake Tanganyika is a big lake. You wouldn't have heard where I'm from. And I, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Lake Tanganyika is a big lake. As a matter of fact, it's the second largest freshwater lake in the world. It's a very long lake, and it's also a very deep lake. And I said, well, the area where we started the church on the shores of Lake Tanganyika in South Kivu is at the very north end of Lake Tanganyika near the border of Burundi. And when I said that, her eyes got wide. She said, well, I come from a place in, on the shores of Lake Tanganyika on the very north end near the border of Burundi. I said, the place where we started the church is a town called Uvira. And when I said that, she began to weep. I'm thinking, what did I say to this girl? She's crying. She said, missionary, the place I come from is Uvira. And she said, missionary, back in 1998, when the war came, I mentioned that war a little bit this morning. The first battle of that war was fought in Uvira. It was so fierce that I'm told by people who are there that the crocodiles in the river that runs through that area were just bloated on the bodies of the dead people that were floating in the river. The river was running red from the blood of people. It was terrible. You go to Uvira today, and along that area, you'll find signboards of different places put up by international aid organizations that will say things like this. On this date, such and such date in the year 1998, 12,000 people were killed on this spot. All through that area. It was terrible. She said when the war came, she said they were killing everybody. She said my family, they were killing my family. I watched my mother die. I watched my father die. I, she said I ran. She said I ran into the forest. She said and I ran and I ran with other people. I was with an uncle and we kept running. We kept hiding for days, for weeks, for months until we finally reached a safe area. She said they put me in a camp. And they transferred me from one camp to another camp to another camp until finally I ended up in a camp in South Africa. She said, when I was in that camp, she said, a preacher came. A Baptist preacher. And preached. And when he preached, I heard something that I had never heard before. She said, and I got saved. And when I got saved, God took away my bitterness. All the pain is still there. But he changed me. And when I got saved in that camp, 
She said, I began to pray. And I prayed, God, I don't know that I'll ever go back to Uvira where I come from. But God, I know the people where I come from need to hear what I heard. God, I don't know if I have any family still alive. But if I do, God, they need to hear about you. And God, I'm just a a girl and I'm not much, but God, would you please send somebody to Avira to tell those people about you? She said, missionary, I've prayed that prayer every day of my life since that day. She said, as I was in that camp, she said, an older, older couple from Canada was living in South Africa, and they came into that camp, and they got to know me, and they adopted me into their family. And I started living with them, and now they've moved back to Nova Scotia, where they came from. He said, that's this family that I'm with. At this time, she was probably in her early 20s, maybe, uh, when she's telling me this story. And as she told me that story, And as she wept through what she is saying, I thought to myself, oh my. Again, when God decided, I'm going to answer that little girl's prayer. He reached down out of the portals of heaven and he chose a group of people in Kenya. Said they want to do something. They've made themselves available, so I'm going to use them. And unbeknownst to us, like a big giant jigsaw puzzle, God was putting things together that Satan meant for evil. To answer the prayer of a little girl. And I'm telling you, church, this evening, there are people like that little girl all over the world asking. Praying, pleading. They exist not only in Africa, they exist here in the United States of America. Well, how do we reach them? How do we find them? Well, I think the answer to that is in the third point of this message, and I want to give you this point, but this point comes in the the way of a question. Again, point number one, there are still places in the world today like Macedonia, Point two, there are still people in the world today like the Macedonian man. Point three is this. Are there still people in the world today like Paul and his team who'll say yes to God? Who'll say, God, it might not be what I planned to do. God, it might not have been what I, where I wanted to go. God, it might not have been what, been what I tra- went to school to be trained for. It, it, it may not have been on my radar, God, but God, I'm available. And if it's what you want, I'm willing. I think it's interesting the way this, the wording in this story is phrased. We, you know, we know that God used Dr. Luke to, as the human pen for the book of Acts. And as Luke is writing the book of Acts, you'll find up through here Acts chapter number 6, when, uh, uh, th- when, or Acts chapter 16, when he's, when he's writing, he's writing a history, he's writing what happened, he's writing what is happening. And, 
And as he's writing and he's saying, listen, this is what they did and this is what he did and this is what she did and this is how God worked through them. And, and I, I'd imagine when Luke is writing this, he's just praising the Lord because, you know, this is great things that are happening. I mean, it's kind of like maybe the missionaries that you support and you might read their letter or hear what's going on in, you know, in Fiji or, or in Europe or in this place. And, and you say, man, that, isn't that great what God's doing with them? Isn't it great what God's doing over there? And you rejoice at that. This is kind of how Dr. Luke is. But then, as Paul has this vision, and Luke is writing, well, look how Luke writes this in verse 6 of chapter 16. You get an understanding here. He says, now when they had gone throughout Phrygia, verse 7, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit suffered them not. Writing about them. But, After Paul had that vision, Luke changes the narrative. He's no longer writing about what they are doing. He begins to write about what we are doing. Look at verse number number 10. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course. You see how it changes there? Luke's been writing about what they're doing, but now he's writing about what we're doing. He becomes part of what's happening. Listen, and the same thing is true for you. You might never go to Africa. You might never go to Europe. You might never go to any of these countries where you are, are, are actively involved in. But I'm telling you something this evening. If you're involved in the missions program of this church... You don't have to look at those prayer letters and say, that's good what they're doing over there. You can, in a real way, say, hey, pastor, isn't it great what we're doing? (laughs) Isn't it great what we're doing over there in that place? Man, isn't it great how God is using us? Man, if you're giving and if you're praying about what's going on, that's exactly what you can do, as Luke did. What these people did is they made themselves available. Something I've learned in my Christian life. Do you know who God uses? He doesn't use perfect people because there's none of us perfect. He doesn't use the most talented people. I promise you that. It's not our riches, our education that he's looking for. Do you know what God is looking for? He's looking for availability. He is looking for people who will just push everything else to the side and say, God, life is not about me. It's about you. I'm available. What do you want me to do? That's, that's what he's looking for. Whether it's on the mission fields of the world or whether it's here in your local body. That's who he's looking for. And when you make yourself available, he uses you. And I'm not standing up here telling you these stories because there's one thing special about me or our people. We are no different than anybody in this room. But I promise you, if you make yourself available... When your life is over, you're going to look back at the blessings and things that God has done and the miracles in your life because he is God. What we're lacking, I think, so much in the world today and amongst churches is the lack of people really making themselves available. And I think that if we do that, if we make ourselves available, we will be amazed beyond measure of what God will do. Paul, here in this story, he didn't have to go to Macedonia. 
He wasn't planning to. But God wanted him to. So he went. Again, as we draw this to the close, be reminded when you read this story that as you read this story, today in the year 2020, there are still places just like Macedonia. There are still people just like the Macedonian man. What God needs is somebody who'll step up and say, I'm available. I'm available, God, whatever you want. And if people do that, the word of God will go forth. Have you made yourself available? It doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. You can make yourself available to what God wants. If you've not, why don't you do that this evening?